Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings is a masterpiece of cinema. I've really truly never seen a film trilogy so carefully pack a thousand pages of source material into three films. He seemed to do the exact opposite with The Hobbit, children's book he unnecessarily made into three movies, but he had a season of brilliance with The Lord of the Rings. And part of it was, yes, his ability to tell a story with the camera, something that's much more difficult than, than I'm aware. Ben, you can probably attest to that. Um, but I also think it was his brilliance in saying yes to the right scenes and no to the wrong scenes. He doesn't try to do everything. Some things he cuts out because he says, hey, I just can't get to that. And you know, you might be saying by the end of this sermon, Tim, you should have done a bit more of that yourself. But I do have a bone to pick though. No man is perfect, but Christ alone. And that includes Peter Jackson because he did cut a character that I love, although I can understand why he cut him. His name is Tom Bombadil. If you know who Tom Bombadil is in The Lord of the Rings, he's this enigma of a character. He's a powerful man or whatever he is who lives in a woods, the old woods, with his beautiful wife, Goldberry. He rescues the hobbits from Old Man Willow and the Barrow White. And the most interesting thing is the ring has no power over him. In fact, when Frodo says, hey, we should just give, you know, give uh, uh, Tom Bombadil the ring, Gandalf thinks that's a terrible idea because he says Tom will probably just lose it because he doesn't care about it at all. And to be fair, I'm not exactly sure how Peter Jackson would have written this guy into the movie because he doesn't really fit the narrative, but he's still also pretty amazing. He's overwhelmingly powerful, right? His power seems to even match that of a wizard like Gandalf. He also can stand against the ring and he has no temptation with it, which is kind of the entire narrative of the Lord of the Rings. No one can withstand the temptation, right? Not even Frodo at the end. And so this character who many people love was written out of the story because he's just so complicated and weird. And in many ways for Christians, Melchizedek is the Tom Bombadil of the Old Testament. He's a strange bird if there ever was one. His name is fun to say, and he seems to appear again and again in scriptures in ways that many people have come up to me and said, what on earth is going on with Melchizedek? In fact, when we preached through the book of Hebrews, many people came to me and said, could we please make sure to not skip Melchizedek because I've always wondered who on earth is this person and why is he so important? Because he's obviously incredibly important. If you don't know, we read it in Genesis 14. He, he comes and he blesses Abram. He comes from the city called Salem, which is Jerusalem. And this is the first time Jerusalem ever appears in scriptures. He's a king who's in, clearly important because after this great military victory, they all give him deference as he throws them a banquet. Odd. Uh, he also... We're gonna find out later, his name literally means righteousness. He's a king of righteousness. And then he is also a priest of the most high. He's a priest of God hundreds of years before the priesthood is established, right? So if you remember in the book of, of Exodus, 
God delivers his people out of Egypt. He establishes through the line of Aaron in the tribe of Levi, this group of people called the Levites, who inherit the responsibility of being priests. But this guy is not connected to the line of Levi at all. In fact, he wildly predates it, and he's considered a priest of the Most High, and significantly, he's in Jerusalem, the place where the Temple Mount is established. So clearly, this is an incredibly important figure, so important that when King David, in Psalm 110, prophesies about this great king that Jesus later says is pointing to himself, what we read in Matthew 22, this great king that will inherit his throne forever and rule over the entire world. Who is that king? He's not just a king. He's also a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So who on earth is this character and why is he so important? Because we later even see in Hebrews 5 and 7, Jesus himself is said to be in his order of the priesthood. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, you won't know this, but during the season of Lent, we are looking at foreshadowings of Jesus in the Old Testament. We are in a season of anticipation, a season of waiting and longing for Easter. That's what the season of Lent is about, a season of anticipation. And the whole Christian life is a season of anticipation for what? The great Easter of the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ will return to make all things new. But when we look at the Holy Scriptures, we see that all of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, is this great anticipation, waiting, unfolding, which leads to Christ Jesus himself. Now, many of us have seen this in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, which is this wonderful book that helps children and adults, I've actually seen it bear a lot of fruit in adults' lives, to see how the whole Old Testament is an unfolding, awaiting on the coming of Jesus. Now, last week, we looked at the very first gospel proclamation in the scriptures, Genesis 3, 15, this passage in which God says that the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, prefiguring Christ's victory over the devil. But today, what I want to look at is how Melchizedek foreshadows the coming of our king, Jesus Christ. Because Melchizedek is somewhat odd. He is a king who was also a priest. He's this one-of-a-kind figure in the Old Testament. Normally, you're either a king or you're a priest, but you're not both. But Melchizedek is both. And what do we know about our Lord Jesus Christ? He is the fulfillment of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so today I want to look at the reality that we need a savior who is a perfect king, and we need a savior who is a perfect priest. And Melchizedek foreshadows this, and Christ fulfills it. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. And while I am completely recovered, my voice is still not totally recovered. So let's look at this together. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's interesting. He was priest of God most high. That's interesting. And he blessed him. That's interesting. And said, blessed be Abram by God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, what we see here is a scene right on the heels of this great military victory of Abram. Lot and the king of Sodom are besieged by this conglomeration of kings led by Chedorlaomer. They're going to totally defeat them. They're carrying Lot off into captivity. And Abram rallies 318 people, not a lot, and goes and defeats these kings. Now, clearly, this is a victory given by God. 318 men cannot defeat a whole, you know, consortium of kings. It just doesn't happen that way. But God delivered these kings, and Lot back to Abram. And as a celebration of this victory, this random king comes up. If you know, this is all happening around the Dead Sea. In Jerusalem, it is, is kind of above it and, and, and I believe to the north of it and, 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 and west. And so he comes down and he celebrates with them. And he does some interesting things. First, he, he blesses them and he has a banquet with them. So we should ask a few questions. What on earth is going on here? Who is this king and why is he so important? And why is he seeming to be, seems to be given deference towards him from these other figures? Now, before we answer that, we first need to answer what a king is and why kings are important in the Old Testament. And before we can answer that, we need to look at the three mediatorial offices of the Old Testament. We're going to do quite a bit of theology today, and then it's all going to apply later, I promise. So what are the three offices of the Old Testament, particularly the offices of mediators, the prophet, the king, and the priest? Now, these offices stood between God and his people. This is what theologians call the principle of the one and the many that in this one person, the many of God's people are represented. And in this one person, God speaks to the many of God's people. This is often easiest to see in the prophet. So let's think about Moses for a second. He's one person. He goes up on a mountain on behalf of all of Israel and God speaks to him. God gives him 10 commandments. And then what does he do? On behalf of God, he comes down from the mountain as the very mouthpiece of God and speaks to all of God's people. He stands as a mediator between God and his people and the people and God. It's a two-way relationship in this one person where the whole are gathered into the one. Now that's somewhat easy to understand with a, a prophet, right? One person speaks on behalf of God to the many and as we're going to see later, it's even kind of easy to understand with a priest, right? The priest goes into the Holy of Holies with 12 stones on his chest, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, offers sacrifices for God, atones for God's people. It's the many being gathered into the one. But so often, we don't understand how kings function in the Old Testament and why they're so important. Kings are also a mediatorial position in the Old Testament. Because what we see time and time again is when a king lives in righteousness, when a king rules in righteousness, what happens? God's peace 
is brought to the land and God's abundance and provision follow. Kings mediate righteousness, a godly life. They govern righteousness, which extends to God's people and all of God's people live righteously. Then God's peace, his shalom, how it's meant to exist, covers the land and God blesses them. We see a provision in the land. But what do we always see in the Old Testament? Whether that's first or second Samuel, first or second Chronicles, judges are kind of like kings, but not quite. What do we see every time in the Old Testament? They all fail. Even the kings that govern pretty well for a while, like David, he fails. What do we see? He brings in Bathsheba, right? This then produces Solomon, who we're going to see later. He also fails. But then what happens? There's conflict amongst his sons. Why is there conflict amongst his sons? Because David's sexual sin, which led to multiple sons, that led to conflict, that led to the breaking apart of the land. We see it with Saul, this guy who had a couple of moments of being pretty good king, but by and large was a terrible king. And he brought conflict into the land. Solomon even, right? The wisest of all the kings of the Old Testament ushered in idolatry through his unrighteousness by having a massive amount of wives and building up a massive military, which even David, he counted his military, which was a sign of not relying on God. What we see is that kings, time and time again in the Old Testament, will have seasons of righteousness where they govern in righteousness, follow God's law in righteousness, obey him in righteousness, and God blesses the land. Peace ensues. But what do we see time and time again? Those kings fail and they usher in unrighteousness to God's people. And a Babylonian captivity follows. A breaking apart of the kingdom follows. Conflict follows, right? So what we see is even David, who then had Solomon, whose sons broke apart the land, we see that unrighteousness follows these kings wherever they go. They have seasons where they govern well, seasons in which God provides through their righteousness, but also we see that this one guides the people of God ultimately not into peace, but into conflict. Now, let's look back to Melchizedek for a moment. But in order to look back at Melchizedek, let's look very far forward. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter seven, beginning in verse one, almost at the very end of your Bible. Again, this figure is gonna haunt scriptures. It says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of Salem, priest of the most high, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of what? King of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which we said was Jerusalem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So who is this king? Who is the shadowy figure? He is a king whose name means righteousness. 
He's a king who rules in Jerusalem. That means peace. And then we also see back in Genesis 14, what does he do with Abram and, his, and, and, and the other kings? He provides for them a banquet of bread and wine. What do we see? A man who brings peace, a man who brings righteousness, a man who brings abundance. And now all of a sudden, this shadowy figure seems to have a very clear purpose because who does he look an awful lot like? A king who will rule forever. A king who will sit upon the throne of Jerusalem as a fulfillment of the promise given to David. A king that rules in perfect righteousness, bringing perfect peace and eternal abundance. Melchizedek all of a sudden becomes an incredibly clear foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not an unnecessary aside. Rather, he is a necessary preparation for the king who will bring what all of our hearts are longing for. Because what did Jesus do on our behalf? He lived a perfectly righteous life. I've talked to you about this before, but so often when we say Christ-centered preaching, what we really mean is cross-centered preaching, and that's not good. If all we talk about is the cross of Jesus Christ, how we removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west, that's important, but that's the priestly office of Christ. We also need to talk about the kingly office of Christ, which means he lived every moment of every day in perfect righteousness on your behalf, so that when you place your faith in him, all of that righteousness is now counted as yours. All of that obedience in the eyes of the Father is now draped over you like a robe of righteousness. And not only that, but we see the one king that can actually rule his people, not in narcissism, but in absolute self-giving, righteous self-sacrifice for his people. This is a king who doesn't demand his people lay down their life for him, although he does, but he also lays down his life for his people. We see a king who gives all of himself to his people, so much so that we see that the great provision that God's people are longing for is what? The body and blood of Christ that brings eternal life. Now, all of a sudden, Melchizedek bringing a feast of bread and wine, it's not some accident because what feast does our Savior bring us week in and week out? The great feast of his body and blood that do not provide for us temporarily. Rather, this is the very bread of heaven that when you eat it, you will not grow hungry. When you drink of him, you will not go thirsty. The one provision that doesn't go away, that doesn't diminish, that isn't ever reduced is the provision of our King Jesus Christ, where he gives us his very body, which is the very source of life. And yet God's people so often look to other kings for their provision, look to other places for their sense of righteousness, look to other sources to bring about peace. 
In this life, we are constantly looking to leaders to form some sense of collective righteousness and peace and provision. This is what every political party, you know, uh, campaigns on, right? We've entered into a season in our history where we don't know what governance is because all we do is campaign, right? Campaigning and governance aren't the same. But what is every promise? We will govern in righteousness, we will bring about peace, and we will provide for you. And sadly, the Christian church For the sake of public witness, and we can't exit the political arena, we need a public witness, but what is our ultimate public witness? Our ultimate public witness is that there is only one king that can actually govern in righteousness. Our actual fundamental public witness is that there is one place and one place alone where you can actually receive the provision you're longing for. Our public witness is to not point at a political party, whether that's on the left or the right, but to point beyond them both to the one king that rules over the cosmos, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that can only begin where we can have a genuinely credible public witness when that reality is actually true in our lives. Because what we want to do is proclaim to the world, that's your only source of righteousness, your only source of peace, your only source of provision. And then in the microcosm of our life, we run to things to try to gain righteousness, to try to prove our worth in the world. We run to things to try to bring about a false sense of peace in our lives when we feel like our lives are spiraling out of control. We run to many things to have a sense of provision. And yet the one place where we have to go for all of these, the one place where we can go that will not let us down is the one who is the greater Melchizedek, the one who governs in perfect righteousness, brings about perfect peace and provides perfect provision, our Lord Jesus Christ. The role of the Christian is always to point beyond this imminent frame to the one who transcends us, our great king. And the only way we can actually have a witness to this is if that's true in the microcosms of our day in and day out lives. Ask yourself the question, who is your true king? And the way to see that is where do you run for righteousness? Where do you run for peace? Where do you run for provision? And if that is anything other than Jesus Christ, just like the kings of the Old Testament, it will let you down. Now, we've seen that we need a perfect king. Now let's look at our need for a perfect priest. Go back with me to Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's a, I use that same app. He was a priest of God most high. I wish I had that guy's voice. I'm getting a nose job And at the week after Easter, and I'm hoping my voice will drop an octave and, you know, our church will explode in, uh, I'll finally get a preacher's voice. I'm getting my deviated septum fixed. Um, And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, 
the king of the Old Testament mediated righteousness and peace and provision. Do you know what the priest mediated? The priest mediated, mediated a restored relationship with God that resulted in blessing. Because what would a priest do? The people of God would have a broken relationship with God. They would be marred by sin. So a priest, on behalf of the many, would offer sacrifices, both to cleanse himself and to cleanse the sins of God's people. And he would go in once a year into the holiest of holies, wearing a breastplate with 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning all of God's people. He would go in there and he would offer sacrifices. He would atone for the sins of God's people. And the relationship between God and God's people would be healed, would be restored, would be renewed. And then what would he do? He would walk out of the temple and extend his hand to God's people and announce what? Blessing. The fundamental role of the priest is to announce God's blessing as the result of a restored, renewed relationship with God. Because what is blessing? It means God's divine favor. And do you know what divine favor simply is? It's what we Protestants call, well, Christians in general, call grace. Grace is God's announcement of his goodwill towards his people. So even in the Old Testament, God's priests, they were ministers of grace, ministers of God's blessing. In fact, when God establishes a priesthood with Aaron, what does he, you know, what, what is the, the fundamental thing he tells him to do? Announce the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and bring you peace. What does Aaron announce? Blessing. And what do we see Melchizedek do here? He blesses Abram on God's behalf. You see, you know, this is why at the end of the service, Kyle or myself as the priests of this church are the ones that announce God's blessing because that's always been the role of the priesthood. The fundamental role is, is not to exercise discipline, although we do do that. It's not simply to preach, although we do do that. It's to bless God's people based upon what? Based upon the restored relationship between God and his people through the priesthood. Now, I don't actually establish that anymore. Why? Because there is a priest in the order of Melchizedek who once and for all established a perfectly restored relationship. In the Old Testament, the priest would have to go in again and again. Why? Because the relationship would be restored and then broken and then restored and then marred. And they would have to go back in year after year to atone for the sins of Israel and then to announce yet again, God has chosen to bless us yet again. But what do we see in Christ Jesus? That work doesn't need to be done again and again. That in him, the relationship between God and humanity has been restored and reconciled once and for all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that every moment of every day is the perpetual announcement 
of our King, our Savior, our priest, that we are blessed by God. We live a life that is perpetual blessing not based upon any external circumstance, not because you won the lottery or got a promotion or your kids are finally behaving, but because Christ Jesus has restored your life with God. And we see that really beautifully explained in Hebrews 11. Turn back there with me. I'm gonna read this long text and then I promise I'll conclude. And so here's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. The author of Hebrews is not trying to say, hey, the Old Testament priesthood didn't matter but it was a shadowy, incomplete priesthood. It was pointing to something else. It was a priesthood that was always fragile and needing to be renewed. It was a priesthood that said, he loves me, he loves me not. Which sadly is how so many of us Christians still live. We still live as if we are under the old covenant. But what we see in the new covenant is that it is a permanent, perpetual, eternal reconciliation in Christ Jesus that brings about eternal blessing. It is a better covenant. Now look back there with me. Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the, the Levitical priesthood, if you don't know what that means, it just means Old Testament priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Remember, Aaron began the Levitical priesthood. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, after which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah in connection with that tribe, Moses, said nothing about the priests. That's an aside that was really important for the Jews, okay? Because they would say, if Jesus is your pre, our priest, he's not allowed to be because he's not a Levite. He's from Judah. He's from David's line. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't forget there's another priesthood. This other priesthood we don't know a ton about, but it's an eternal priesthood from this guy named Melchizedek. So that's what that argument is trying to say here. Now back to my point. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, meaning he's not a Levite, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you remember that from Psalm 110? For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. It was never perfect. It was always tenuous. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save 
to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What do we see here? There's a different priest, one who is able to save to the uttermost, because the holiest of holies was just a shadow of what? The throne room of God. And where does the Son of God now live? At the right hand of the Father. So this priest doesn't enter the throne room once a year. He lives there. And he doesn't, he isn't able to just hear some prayers for his people. He's able to hear all of the prayers for all of his people, to offer them eternally and perpetually, to offer a fully reconciled, healed relationship with the Father. And what this ultimately leads to is the eternal announcement of God's blessing. It's not a blessing that comes once a year. It's not a blessing that happens only when things are good. It's not a blessing even when, when you're your best self. It is a blessing that is offered purely by the grace of God to all those who believe. A blessing that is irrespective of life's circumstances. It is a blessing that announces and proclaims your relationship with God has been healed. Family, we are all looking for blessing in this life because ultimately what is blessing? It is saying and announcing, I find you favorable. I find you delightful. I find you desirable. And Israel needed this to be healed and restored year after year when they didn't, when they became undesirable. God would graciously bring them back into beauty. But what does Christ Jesus do for you? He perfectly cleanses you. He makes you perfectly beautiful and desirable, not only when things are going well, but all the time, forever, perpetually, because of his great sacrifice and resurrection for you. This is why it's so important that we have a great high priest. This is why you can approach God not in fear, but in boldness. This is why there's an announcement that Christ Jesus saved us to the uttermost. What that means is he's brought us as close to God as you can possibly get. And yet so often our lives are spent what? Trying to force others to see us as desirable, chasing blessing from others that will always let us down, that will always be a qualified blessing, that will never give you those words of affirmation that your heart is ultimately looking for. Family, that announcement of blessing can come from only one place, the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our king, you are our priest, you are the one that brings us into righteousness, into holiness, into beauty, into reconciled life and blessing. Lord, would we look to you and you alone 
as our source of righteousness and peace and provision. And Lord, would we look to you and to you alone as the ultimate source of the blessing we are all looking for. To the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.